0: This is Make Yourself at Home, a podcast from BizNow where we discuss the fallout of the pandemic and the lockdowns on the commercial real estate industry. My name's Miriam Hall. I'm BizNow's New York reporter. Today, we hear from our writers in the United Kingdom on how the virus could shape the market in the months to come. The UK has recorded more than 26,000 deaths from COVID, and the economic damage, like most countries around the world, has been intense. Lockdown began on March 23, and the UK is now said to be heading into a recession worse than 2008. Mike Phillips is BizNow's UK editor. He spoke to me from suburban West London. David Tame is our Manchester and Birmingham correspondent, and he spoke to me from Ludlow, a small town on the border between England and Wales. I began by asking David about political tensions that are emerging over attempts to move past this crisis.
1: There's a serious political debate going on within the Conservative Party about how to end the lockdown, how and when to end it. You've got the doves on one side, possibly including Boris Johnson, the Prime Minister, who are wanting to play this cautiously, who don't want to lift the lockdown until they're quite sure that a second wave of coronavirus infection is unlikely. On the other side, we've got the hawks who want to reopen the economy as soon as they can. And this is complicated by the fact that we've not just got one government here, we've got four. And the government in Scotland, and to a certain extent in Wales, have made it quite clear that if they think that England is rushing out of lockdown too quickly, they will go more slowly, will then say see potentially a difference in death rates in Scotland and in England, and that could be politically fatal for Boris Johnson. So he's under pressure not only from within his own party and government, but from other governments within the United Kingdom. It is one hell of a political mess, um, and it's not clear at this stage quite how the government will get out of it.
0: Mike, you're our London editor. Uh, Here in the US, we're expecting a recession or being told to expect a recession of basically untold proportions. What are you hearing in terms of what's ahead in the UK?
2: Well, in the UK, we don't quite report the joblessness numbers with the same frequency as in the US. So we haven't quite got the same data yet about unemployment levels as a result of the coronavirus crisis. But we have a similar furlough program in place. And take up of that has been dramatically higher than was anticipated. So all the all the signs point to, you know, a very, very dramatic cutback and, and decrease in the economy. You know, predictions of a of a recession which could wipe about a third off UK off UK GDP. So kind of un unheard of in uh, in peacetime in the last few centuries really. And, you know, Decades of data show that in times of economic recession, commercial property fares particularly poorly. It is very, very correlated to the uh, to the economy when businesses are cautious and, and struggling. They don't take new space and they don't pay higher rent.
0: And so, David, what does that mean in terms of investment sales? I mean, what would it mean for people who've bought a lot of property in the last little while?
1: I think they're going to be in for a shock. I think a great many investors were motivated by the yield gap, the gap between property yields and equities or bonds. And uh, they perhaps weren't paying a great deal of attention to the boring fundamentals of collecting rent and uh, obtaining tenants, they will now find that they're sitting on buildings where there maybe is no rental income or very limited rental income, no prospects of rental uplift, quite possibly empty business rates to pay. It means that simply owning the property um, comes with a substantial financial penalty. Um, for those investors who were motivated by the higher level of mathematics rather than property fundamentals, uh, they could find themselves surprised by the cost of owning real estate in the UK.
2: Just to expand on what David said there, Miriam, um, David's absolutely right. For 10 years, what you've heard from investors is that real estate is a great investment relative to to bonds and equities because of that gap between you know the the yield on property and interest rates. And obviously, interest rates have have dropped even further as a result of government and central bank action, as a result of the coronavirus crisis. But if, you, if your property isn't paying any income, the gap between interest rates and, and property yields is irrelevant because you're not, you're not getting any income and it's, a, and it's a liability. So the relative trade that's been a big part of property investment for, for many a year is now essentially redundant.
1: And there are specific costs in the UK. Empty buildings attract a, a special rate levy. Um, having an empty building can be seriously expensive.
0: A large number of investors in London have been overseas investors, about 70%, and similarly in a place like Manchester. I'm assuming those investors have, I guess, evaporated. That must be pretty devastating for the outlook for the market.
2: Yeah, you're absolutely right, Miriam. I mean, sort of long-term data shows that... Overseas investment makes up about kind of 70 to 80 percent of, of investment in a city like London. That's one of the highest of any city in, in Europe and indeed the the world. You know, the kind of cliche of London being a global gateway city is absolutely, absolutely true. Um, and you're right. I mean, that just absolutely falls off a cliff in a time like this. And that's partly for straight down the line commercial property reasons. You know, it is very, very hard to underwrite an investment deal at the moment when you have no idea what the um what the income is going to be for the for the foreseeable future, so you know people are understandably very very risk averse um but there's a there's a really kind of physical human reason as well, which is that a lot of commercial property, even though technology has advanced in recent years and it's becoming slowly a more technologically savvy sector of the economy, most investment sales involves someone going and seeing the property and, you know, kind of actually getting a sense of it by walking around it and seeing what it's like in its physical environment. And if you can't get on a plane and go and see a property right now, um, you're not going to be you're not going to sort of spend, you know, tens, maybe hundreds of millions, billions of pounds buying it. So inherently kind of overseas investment dries up and, you know, liquidity in general, Cushman and Wakefield, reported that about a billion pounds of UK property deals have fallen out of bed in the last few weeks and and are no longer no longer ongoing um if you don't need to sell a property in this kind of environment why would you um i guess the flip side of that is again real estate uh, real capital analytics produced a report recently that said when markets do bounce back it's those markets that are most liquid and transparent which tend to Tend to bounce back first, and London is obviously very much up there among those liquid and and transparent markets. so when we do get to the end of this london will will bounce back more quickly than it's uh, than many of its european european peers, so that's something for people to people to focus on um I guess another interesting element of this particular crisis when you compare it to two thousand and eight is in two thousand and eight you know there were a few players that had capital and were able to take advantage. Um, you know, the Blackstones, Brookfields of the Worlds, you know, some of the sovereign wealth funds were among the those, you know, very few parties that had money available and were able to buy at distressed prices. When distress does start to come through, uh, you know, which won't be for a while because banks typically And sellers, you know, typically take a while to get to the point where they feel they need to sell. But when they do, people are absolutely cashed up. You know, there is tens, hundreds of billions of dry powder in opportunity funds and, you know, other other sovereign wealth funds as well. So I don't think it'll be more competitive to find the kind of bargains this time, uh, this time around uh, compared to 2008. Um, David, I'm not sure what the view from uh, from Manchester and Birmingham is on the investment market.
1: Very similar. I think those are markets that will both recover very quickly. And I think it's so often the case with, um, with a viral illness, which the economy has got, is that those that were weak recover slowest, and those who were strong get a, a mild dose. And the property market in Manchester certainly was very open to international money. About 50% of transactions were funded by overseas capital. And I think that will be one of those... Uh, places in Europe where people look for growth and for safety and stability in a very uncertain world.
0: Can you give me a sense of where that capital was coming from?
1: Um, In Manchester, it was roughly evenly divided between North America, Asia and Europe, Um, but German, Swiss and some Central European money, uh, Czechs and Slovaks, that lot, um they were they were they were increasingly prominent
0: similarly in london mike
2: in london i mean you had a situation you know up until and then you know in the immediate aftermath of brexit where you know london was the destination of choice if you were a wealthy you know privately wealthy um hong kong in particular but privately wealthy asian buyer london was the was the was the destination of choice you saw some huge Deals done by people that you know you might never have heard of before. So, um, you know, the inventor of oyster sauce paid one pound, uh, one one point two billion pounds for the for the walkie-talkie office uh, office tower, and that was a name that most people in UK business and commercial property had never never heard before. Um, that that sort of slowed down around the time that the Brexit negotiations were at their most um, fraught, and but in the wake of the you know sort of First quarter of twenty 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 was actually a you know, a very, very strong quarter for investment in London because there was seemingly more clarity over, over Brexit and all of those international buyers that David mentioned had sort of come running back. You know, there's so there's some some evidence that again it's the people who don't necessarily have to report to a credit committee who will probably be the most first out of the block. So there was a report that um Amancio Ortega the founder of Zara and Inditex you know one of the world's richest men he is in talks to buy a building in the midtown region of London for about 180 million he's just a wealthy guy he doesn't have to report to shareholders or an investment committee or worry about the liabilities of his pension holders like a lot of property buyers so those sort of people can act can act fast but again i think the issue will be finding things to buy in a market like this because there aren't many highly leveraged sellers there're not many people that need to sell in this kind of market and therefore why why would you when you can wait for 12 months when there might be a vaccine and all of a sudden the world is looking a little bit more normal and you can probably get something closer to what you think the value of your your
0: property is so it's just kind of going to be frozen for a little while sure Talking about office, I mean, I heard the CEO of Barclays this week saying he doesn't think thousands of people in in an office is going to be the way of the future. Obviously, there's all these sorts of issues about social distancing and how the the virus is spread. He's not the first executive to make comments like that and kind of signal an interest in working from home. Put bluntly, Mike, do you think office space is in trouble in somewhere, somewhere like London?
2: I think putting it in trouble is is probably too strong. I mean, we ran a survey of our readers about their kind of experience of working from home and and what they miss most about their office and what they value most about their office having been out of it for for six weeks and the the results were 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 pretty instructive. I mean, in terms of working from home, we're definitely going to be doing it more. you know all of the kind of psychological and cultural and business. Uh, fears about working home i think have just been blown blown away we've all got we've all got zoom or some other kind of technological uh, way of keeping in touch businesses have seen that they can send workers home and you know people aren't just going to kind of doss around and watch the watch the telly Um, and workers have realized that you know actually this can be you know in the right circumstances Um, You know, quite a productive environment. And, you know, our our survey said that fewer than a quarter of people ever, ever worked from home before COVID. But, you know, kind of 70 to 80 percent of them in future want to work at least one or two days a week from home. And that, you know, is mirrored in the fact that companies like Barclays have actually realised, you know, our business didn't stop working the instant people weren't in an office anymore. Um, So culturally and business wise, office owners sort of realise there is more scope for people to work from home and therefore that leads in the longer term, certainly towards the idea that there's going to be fewer people in the office at any given time and they perhaps need a smaller footprint. But, you know, I think what's not going to happen is that, you know, is a dramatic, you know, sort of halving of the office space, because what our survey showed was that people do really value the social collaborative side of side of the office. So sort of beyond the beyond the the short term implications of you know we are going to need to stay six feet away from each other. That will will pass. The need to kind of radically socially distance ourselves in in that kind of way. And when that does pass, you know offices are still the place where people gather to you know talk about work, but also talk about Tiger King.
0: So co-working, however, it's taken a bit of a hit. David, do you think it's still going to exist?
1: Oh, I'm sure it'll exist. Uh, Mike, Mike is absolutely right. I don't think there's any loss of faith in the UK office market. In Manchester this week, we saw um, Hermes uh, decide uh, announce that they will go ahead with a speculative development in the Noma district to the north of the city of about 200,000 square feet. That, that is a sign that general faith in the office market is still quite uh, pronounced. However, um, London to a considerable extent and Manchester and Birmingham to a growing extent have been mainlining a very dangerous drug which is co-working. We've seen something over 300,000 square feet um, taken by WeWork alone in Manchester. It's amounted to about um, between a fifth and a quarter of take-up each quarter. this is a. This has become a substantial addiction for the office market, and it's plainly one that's not going to lead them to a very good place. Uh, we work for reviewing what they're doing in Manchester and Birmingham. No doubt, the same is happening in other cities around the world. And if you then look at social distancing and how that affects co-working, if you halve the number of workstations, then the the chance of viability in many co-working venues is it, it goes plunges right down so i think there are serious questions being asked now about how this situation resolves itself many of the more sophisticated regional landlords are expecting to take on co-working directly themselves and offer it to their occupiers perhaps take a a devoted floor of a building to it as part of a, a suite of tenant options that they they offer this is being debated now i know it's being debated i've heard the debates in manchester and birmingham It's going to be one of the more interesting outcomes for the office market is exactly how this is resolved, who takes on the risk, who takes on the operational risk. Um, I don't yet know what the answer is, but it's something a lot of people are thinking about.
0: Yeah, already in the US and places like New York, we're already seeing companies, some of the big co-working companies saying they're gonna be handing back space. Uh, So it's obviously something that's going to be playing out over the next few months. Just talking about negotiations between landlords and tenants, here in the U.S., we've heard a lot about landlords and um, the occupiers of their space reaching deals about rent abatements and talking about like how they might handle things over the next few months. Mike, how are landlords working with their tenants? Are they cutting deals at the moment?
2: Sure. I mean, I think, you know, US uh, U.S. listeners might not be surprised to hear that the system is quite archaic and strange in, uh, in the UK. So over here, tenants pay their rent on a quarterly basis and they pay for the upcoming quarter. Um, And so for tenants, it was, you know, we, we have these things called quarter days. They're at the end of um, each quarter so the last one that came up was sort of end of uh, end of March and so tenants all of a sudden who had seen their um, you know revenue drop to drop to zero overnight um, were suddenly being asked to pay um, a quarter's worth of rent upcoming um, and obviously that's a big big um, business liability they're trying to work out how to how to manage their businesses and keep the keep the lights on and you know work out are we going to be able to afford to pay staff etc so understandably you know there was a big um debate and a lot of negotiations between landlords and tenants and the data shows that in the wake of the quarter day maybe 60% of of all uk commercial property rent got paid but then within that overall figure there is a massive disparity so in the retail and leisure world as you can imagine uh, where you know really did re- revenue really did just sort of dry up for retailers and pubs and bars and nightclubs and casinos um you know that figure is kind of closer to 30% whereas in the industrial world which is a bit more robust and uh, lo- the logistics sector has obviously you know been a been a, one of the few beneficiaries to a certain degree of of the covid situation um you know that figure is closer to 80% um so The issue has been around government policy to a certain degree. Obviously, landlords and tenants have been trying to get together um, and work out the best way to negotiate their way through this. And, you know, the phrase that obviously gets used a lot is share the pain. The issues come up, the UK government put in place a, a piece of legislation where, first of all, landlords weren't allowed to evict tenants for not paying rent and then introduced further legislation stating that landlords weren't allowed to use the court system to try and wind companies up that weren't paying their rent which is which is great and tenants did need that protection but then that essentially became a carte blanche for for tenants not to pay their rent and that to a certain degree just passes the pain on to to the landlord who you know in turn might have to then pass the pain on to the to the banking system because if tenants aren't paying the rent then that makes it problematic for landlords to pay their interest uh, payments, and they use those rent those quarterly rental payments to pay their quarterly interest. People have talked about banks needing to give forbearance and you know give low you know interest payment holidays to tenants, but that is not as easy as it um, as it sounds. I was talking to a banker this morning who was sort of explaining how it's unclear. Um, you know, banking regulators have. Um, tried to ease the pressure on banks and loosen the restrictions on how they how they classify loans but it's not entirely certain that if you're a bank and you say to your tenant uh your your sort of borrower okay for this quarter you don't have to pay the interest that you aren't sort of breaking banking regulations by giving them that that forbearance and have to kind of classify the loan as defaulted and therefore you know hold a bunch of extra capital against it so um you know it's very very complicated as to how you actually share the pain evenly about, um but as you know one of the one of the sort of consultants I was speaking to, Anthony Lorenz, pointed out, if landlords do just kind of put pressure on tenants to keep paying who's going to f- who's going fill the space, and you know for landlords, if they do sort of you know play hardball with tenants you know who 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 are you going to fill the space you're just going to end up with sort of swathes and swathes of empty empty shops which is a situation we may end up in anyway you know the British retail consortium came out today and said they anticipate a third of uh, a third of retail stores you know being unable to reopen anyway even if landlords do offer some concessions so you know it is a very very fraught sector.
0: David in New York you know the streets are really quiet a lot of people have left and Because of that, there's been some wider questions asked about what the long-term impact this is going to have on the city's ability to attract young people, to attract young talent, the sorts of people that have been coming here for the past decade or so. And it's also raised wider questions about cities in general. Are there similar concerns circulating in the UK?
1: Yeah, I, I think the, the concerns are very similar. Of course, in the short term, we've not seen, nor will we see, anyone fleeing the cities, not least because they would be arrested and taken back home if they tried. So that's not going to happen. But, but thinking thinking ahead to the sort of post-pandemic world, the next couple of years, I've been speaking to a large number of people who are beginning to see the virtues in the suburbs and out-of-town business parks and the satellite towns around the major cities. I'm wondering if they might make convenient places to roost whilst they work out how their business copes with social distancing and the new world in which they they find themselves. Longer range, well, bear in mind that cities have always imported the poor and the young and exported the elderly and the rich, and that, no doubt, will always continue to be the case. But... There is some slender evidence that people in their 40s with young families are already um, leaving London and heading to Alternatives. Birmingham has done well there. And Manchester does rather better by keeping graduates from the very beginning. Graduate retention is extremely high. So those are people who might have gone to live in London. Uh, who now spend their lives perfectly happily in Manchester? Very unusual in the UK. That is a most unusual situation. Everyone goes to London, so not going to London is quite a thing. Um, so yeah, there there are issues here. There are trends far too soon to say how any of this will pan out. But if I owned an office block in Guildford um, or um, a, a, a co-working centre in Richmond, I might be thinking I would be better placed and some people in the heart of the city.
0: Thank you both so much for spending time and chatting. It's been really great to have you on. Thanks Miriam, it's been great.